Well, I think there's some very encouraging things in this final book of the Psalms. We've gone through uh, quite a bit of the difficulties that David and others had and the church has had. But this is a very encouraging area. Uh, So I want to get back into it in Psalm 129. says, Many a time have they afflicted me from my youth, may Israel now say. If we look back on the history of Israel from Jacob on, we find that there have been mountains and valleys, probably by far more valleys than mountains in terms of the song we just heard. Israel has gone through lots of bad times, and we find even yet spiritual Israel, the church, going through some pretty horrific times, splitting and division and difficulties, and we see a perfect storm brewing in physical Israel that is going to take it down very shortly now. So we will not be singing of our majestic mountains from sea to shining sea. Israel will be looking for a crumb of bread. So, indeed, what was written here was a story of history and a prophecy. Many a time have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. Israel is still alive and afloat, and the church, spiritual Israel, is also alive and afloat. Even though God said there would be trouble, He said it would never die out, that there would be some who would remain faithful throughout. We just had one among us die this week, who I think was faithful throughout. And I see people here today who are being faithful and continuing that way, and I expect you to fulfill that as well, as does God or he would not have called you. They have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. Uses an agricultural term here, like we've had a yoke of oxen with a big plow behind it, and we were prone upon the ground and having our back plowed. Um, That would be excruciating. And that has happened to Israel. And to some degree, I think we may feel that way today. The eternal is righteous. He has cut asunder the cords of the wicked. He has given us opportunity to cut those cords, and in fact, in Isaiah 52, he has told us to break those bonds asunder and not let the world walk upon us anymore, to arise and be counted, and he will bless us. So he says, let them all be confounded and turn back that hate Zion. We know from Hebrews 12, 22 and 23 that Zion is typical of the church. We know that it is also a physical location and that it is going to be the seat of the government of God, Zion and Jerusalem together, and that the world today hates that thought. They do not want it to happen. But he says, let them be confounded that have that attitude. 
Let them be as the grass upon the housetops, which withers before it grows up. If you had a soddy and planted grass on top, if you didn't get sufficient rain and the roots didn't go deep enough, they could wither very, very quickly and become a fire hazard. Just as we see the crops in this country right now withering in drought, and there will be millions of people around the world who starve to death this coming year if there is not substantial rainfall in the agricultural belt of the United States of America. That's what it portends. Wherewith the more fills not his hand, nor he that binds sheaves his bosom. Don't have anything to gather in, to take, to eat. And we're fast coming upon this circumstance. So this prophecy is very much true today, even as it has been in the past, in our nation that lies out before us here. Neither do they which go by say, the blessing of the eternal be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. The rest of the world looks at us, and they are not ready to confer any blessing on us. And in fact, we sing, God bless America, and perhaps many are beginning to wonder, why would God bless America? So he says, this is where you are. And that's exactly where we find ourselves today. So then, what comes next? Out of the depths have I cried to you, O Eternal. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. So here, the psalmist and we are shown as crying out to God, supplicating him, wanting him to turn his face to us, and as we see in the next verse, to forgive. If you, eternal, should mark iniquities, O eternal, who shall stand? That is quite a statement. God does not write down, mark down iniquities. He does not keep score. He forgives, and he allows us a new day every day. Now, I have beat that horse mercilessly for weeks and months now that we might learn to be more forgiving and more merciful one with another. I'm not going to beat it anymore today, but I am going to make some points from this verse. I asked you to be thinking a bit before, that is, at the end of last sermon, of what are some of the worst sins that can be. So let's back up for a moment and look at God's approach and attitude. He is love. God is love. He lives by a certain code, which the Apostle John told us equals love, and that is the commandments. This is the love of God, that you keep the commandments. So that code of conduct is what is the catalyst for God's love. It is the way we need to live if we are to exhibit the love of God. Now, God saw a world that had sinned, starting with Adam and Eve, did he not? 
And before the foundations of the world, he ordained that the one who would become the Christ would come here and live and die. Why? The law of God, broken, brings the death penalty. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the wages of sin or death. Romans 6, 3.23 and 6.23. So we all come under the death penalty from Adam and Eve down until today. Now God is so loved the world, that he sent his one and only begotten Son, that they should not perish, but have eternal life. If there were not forgiveness of sin from the Father through his Son, we would all perish, even as he perished for our sins. And there would be no eternal life for anyone. Now, it is very clear throughout Scripture that God cannot abide sin, that he hates it. He will even bind Satan a thousand years, release him for a short time in fairness to fill out his time, and then he will be bound eternally as the Scriptures appear to read. So God will not abide sin. When the new Jerusalem comes down at the beginning of the millennium, no one who sins, and that means there will be human beings around who still are, will be allowed within that city. And the waters that go out from his throne will be there for the healing of the nations. So that is millennial. It is not after the great white throne judgment, after the earth is recreated, as we once thought, because there would be no humans around to sin and have to be kept out. So, it is very clear that mankind and all his history would have to be obliterated forevermore if it were not for the plan and the purpose that God has made. Because that's the law. Now, love and mercy, through Christ and his sacrifice, can remove the penalty of the law upon you and me, because he died for us. You see, once the law is broken, death has to occur. It is the penalty for sin. Period. Therefore, death has to occur. Now, the fact that there was someone who could be sacrificed, whose life was worth more than all of ours put together is providential. So we do not have to pay that penalty ourselves. He took it upon himself to pay our penalty for us. What awesome concern and love, emotion and feeling and commitment was between the only two God beings in the universe that one of them was willing to give up eternity for us. So, one of the greatest aspects of love is God working out a plan whereby 
we would not have to die eternally. And that is forgiveness of sin. God's personality has many aspects, all of which are summed up in love, for it is the greatest thing. But love consists of many different qualities. Take the fruit of the Spirit, for instance. One of them is love, but God is made up of all those fruits and more. Those are just samples. They're not all the fruits of God's Spirit, but they're certainly a huge sampling of it. So, if God showed mercy in the days of Noah and did not destroy mankind when he very well came close, and if he is not going to destroy mankind here in the end when our thoughts are continually evil, but it will come close, and if it were not cut short, no flesh would be saved alive. But God loves us so much that he sent that son, and he did die, and he was resurrected, and we have opportunity for life. Can you find anything greater than that in Scripture? Now, what did Christ say when the Pharisees got nitpicky about small things and bragging about their conduct? He says, yeah, you're remembering the smaller matters of the law, and they are important, but they're smaller by comparison. And he mentioned mercy as one of the three weightier things that he brought out. So mercy has to be one of the greatest aspects of God's love, one of the very heaviest of the weightier matters of God's personality. I take time to explain this because perhaps if we understand better, rather than being railed upon to have more mercy and more forgiveness, if we understand a little more fully what all has gone on to provide mercy for us, then we can understand better when Christ says, I will judge you by the weightier matters of the law. If you forgive, I will forgive you. If you show mercy, I will show mercy on you. If you do not, I simply will not. And he was able to say that because he had shown such incredible mercy himself. And it being one of the heaviest matters of the law, it is something that has to be a part of our character and our daily lives, or we do not qualify to rule over those people who survive the Holocaust at the end of this age in the millennium, nor to judge or rule over or manage the people in the great white throne judgment, or to help Christ manage the universe forevermore. Without forgiveness and mercy, none of us today would exist. None of us would be in the kingdom of God. And there is, something, there is nothing in the makeup of the Father and the Son 
that I can think of that is any more important than that. There may be other things that are weighty that are just as important. But think of the incredible things they did for us. And then grasp why it is so important for us to have those characteristics. He forgives us daily. He will never again bring up our sins to us. They will never be mentioned again once we're resurrected. They'll be removed as far as the east is from the west. Now that is the standard for us. And we all, of course, have trouble living up to it. But I wanted to take this moment at this particular verse to talk about that a little bit. It's not that I, brethren, have focused on one or five of us and keep going back to that to persecute someone. It's not that at all. It's that it is such a huge thing that you find it wherever you go in God's Word. It's everywhere. We had Bible study Thursday night, and we just happened to be at Luke 16. I did not rearrange the books or the chapters to come there. It's just what was there. And I want to go back there for a moment and see this passage from Christ himself, which underlines what God said there in Psalm, what is it, 130, verse 3. Well, let's see, maybe, let's see, where do I want to go? Oh, chapter 17 is where I want to, to get to. Then said he to the disciples, It is impossible that offenses, but that offenses will come. Offenses are a part of life. It is impossible that they not come. He said, It's inevitable. It will happen. You cannot go through life without offending or being offended. It's just, well, again, inevitable. It will happen. Clear statement. But woe to him through whom they come. If we offend others, it is a serious, serious mistake. What does he say? It were better for him, not worse, but better for him, that a millstone were hanged about his neck. Millstones are quite heavy. They're used to grind grain. And there is no human being that would not sink with one tied round his neck. And be cast into the sea, than that he should offend one of these little ones. So giving offense is a death penalty, okay? I don't know whether we've really thought of it in that way or not. We give and take offense pretty flippantly and pretty lightly at times. Not loving enough, not caring enough for other people's feelings, their needs, their well-being. That we give and take fairly freely 
of the tree of offense. But God calls it a death penalty. Take heed to yourselves. If if your brother trespass against you, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. So, don't give offense. But if offense comes, and you were offended, you must be ready to forgive. Now, there is a time to rebuke. There is a time to entreat. It may depend upon the size of the offense. There are lesser and greater offenses. There are little slights, perhaps socially, and then there are huge offenses. And the punishment needs to be commensurate to the particular offense. But a rebuke can be in order. Now he says, if he trespass against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again and tell you, I repent, or I'm sorry, or forgive me, or I'll try not to do that again, some form of change, which is what repent is, you shall forgive him. Now, Luke is quoting from a little uh, longer source in Matthew. And there it says 70 times 7. It does not, in that scripture, say in one day, but I think the point is well taken. 490 times is a lot of times for someone to do something to you and you to forgive them and for them to repent of it, for that matter, you'll begin to question their sincerity after about 314, probably anyway. But, obviously, the principle is infinity. We need to be able to forgive forevermore, even as God does. He goes on to talk about if we just do that which is commanded of us in verse 10, we're unprofitable servants, we've only done our duty. We need to go above and beyond wherever we can, is the point he's making. But I want to go down to verse 13 and use one more thing here that I used the other night, because I think there's a great lesson here for us, and it bears repeating to a larger audience and put on tape for others to hear uh, in other ways at other times. Verse 13, And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, or Emmanuel, he uses both, Master, have mercy on us. Well, wait a minute, I I should have picked it up. They were going through the midst of Samaria and Galilee in verse 12, And he entered into a certain village. There met him ten men that were lepers, which stood far off. Leprosy was highly communicable, and it was a disease that killed you. It did it very, very slowly. Uh, It ate you up one piece at a time, and you died. So they were put away from everyone else and stood far back, because no one had wanted to be near them, no one wanted to touch them. They were in great fear of a leper. And when he saw them, verse 14, he said to them, Go show yourselves to the priests. Now in the Old Testament, that was what was done if they were cleansed somehow, which had to have been very rare. The priests had to do certain tests to be sure they were cleansed before they could be allowed back in the congregation. And communicable disease is treated the same way in the New Testament. Not leprosy per se, but anything spiritually communicable that is negative and of 
ill nature. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. Not absolutely immediately, but as they were walking away, it came upon them. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God. One out of ten. And fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan, not even an Israelite. And Emmanuel answering said, Were there not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? They are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said to him, Arise, go your way, your faith has made you whole. Wouldn't it be wonderful for any of us to receive that accolade from Christ? He said it was pretty spotty that he might find faith on the earth when he returned. Faith is a true faith is a very rare commodity. And yet this Samaritan had it. And he was given an accolade by Christ for having that kind of faith. Something that is desirous for you and me. But I want to make a point here. One out of ten. God uses tithing in Malachi 3 uh, as an example of how we have denied God. And I think that there was a very good reason he used that particular thing. He could have picked upon several things, perhaps. But he used that because the scriptures are quite clear that in the end time here, and then in Malachi is written to the end time church, uh, uh, ending with Christ's return. So, He has told us in many places he is going to save out a remnant, a tenth, of those who have been called and bring them together to form the end-time church. So out of all those called, God shows clearly he is going to have his tenth. So it's not just monetary. It's a tenth of the people that were called. Now I can go to many scriptures to prove that, and we've been there so you know it. Now, the church has been scattered. It is very clear in Revelation 3 that at the end time, there would be a lot of people taking God for granted, giving Him lip service, but not truly obeying Him in the way that He wishes. And He would spew them out of His mouth. Well, We can pick and choose, perhaps, but it appears that we've all been spewed. There has been breaking and division and scattering throughout the church, and it continues unabated today. I just heard within the last 24 hours uh, of continuing splitting and people leaving in several organizations. So it's not done, and God has not stirred His tent to come yet. But I have a question for you. How many of us have thanked God for this scattering in the church? We have bemoaned it. We have belittled it. We have castigated it. We have blamed others for it. We have blamed it on the devil. It came from God. 
Now, just as with Job, it came from God, but he sent Satan to do it. So I think Satan has had his hand certainly in it. But it was at God's direction that he could not stand the taste of the church and spit us out. Now, no chastening for the moment seems happy or joyous. In fact, it can be very grieving and very difficult. However, Hebrews 12 tells us that he chastens every son whom he loves. So if we were a part of the chastening and the spittle of God, that proves he loves us. And he said, don't be down, don't be discouraged. In fact, he even tells us to joy in our tribulations and trials, doesn't he? Have we yet come to the point that we can turn to God and thank Him for our paddling. Because He says, don't be discouraged or downtrodden over it, but to let that which is lame be healed. To straighten out our attitudes, to heal properly, and be able to thank God that He used such a horrible thing to get us spiritually healed. Now, this leper was healed physically. But our healing, even though we have physical debilities that need to be healed, we feel, our spiritual healing is even more important. And God has done that which was required to bring us to repentance, to make us think seriously, and to begin the healing process. I think we need to be like this one Samaritan. One of ten in the church who turns and says, Glory to God that you have brought us through this to save us. That's what he's done. How incredible is the mercy and the love of God. Let us be thankful for all that has come upon us that we might be saved in the day of the return of our Lord. Because that's what this is about. Now let's go back to the Psalms. Again, chapter 130 and verse 4. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. You know, if the judge pronounces a death sentence upon someone and they put them on death row, they fear death. But if a pardon from some direction comes, what an incredible joy that is, that they're released from prison and allowed that freedom again. We have all come under the death penalty. How wonderful it is, and how we ought to fear God and how merciful he is in that he has been willing to forgive you and me. And he has. I wait for the eternal. My soul does wait. And in his word do I hope. We read these very comforting words here in chapter three and, or verses 3 and 4. And we wait for this. We wait for his mercy to be shown 
and we meanwhile prepare, hoping to be worthy not only to escape what is about to hit the world around us and is already hitting, and to escape the lake of fire and be in the kingdom of God eternally. Wow. I wait for that. There's a lot of comfort here. My soul waits for the eternal more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. Throughout history, there were not electric lights and you didn't do much at night. And there was a lot of fear and danger in the night because you couldn't see your enemies and a lot of people died in the night. So people waited for morning. And in the winter when it was cold and they huddled together in northern climes, they longed for the sun to come up. So, in our little cocoon in which we have lived the last roughly hundred years, maybe this doesn't mean much to us. But for the last 6,000 years, it meant a lot. So this analogy is very fitting for most of mankind's history. And we will be without electricity fairly soon now again uh, in this nation and perhaps the world especially this nation, because it is the nation that the beast and false prophet will destroy first. Let Israel hope in the eternal, for with the eternal there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption, abundant redemption. He is our great Redeemer. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Wow. Let us do the same to each other. Chapter 131. Eternal, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. We should be being humbled by what we have been going through in the church and our hope and mercy and the love of God and our Redeemer should help us fear God and humble us so that we come to have this attitude right here. Not vain, not proud, not egocentric, but humble and meek. Neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. I don't think too much of myself, he says. I do as Paul recommended, and that is to esteem others higher than myself, not brag on how much I pray or how much I study or how little I eat or any number of things or how great I am or whatever that we sometimes do. Surely I have behaved and quieted myself shut my mouth as a child that is weaned of his mother. child's got his tummy full. God says, I'm going to fill your tummies. And then you won't cry out. You'll be quiet like a baby that's just been fed and brought off the nipple. My soul is even as a weaned child. Now it can begin to eat solid foods but it has had the comfort of mother's bosom for X number of times and is content, has been well fed. And God is feeding us well in these chapters. Let Israel hope in the eternal from henceforth 
and forever. So once these conditions occur and God begins to show His mercy, even on the church, it is time to be humbled and fear God and to hope in Him forevermore. There will not be a downtime for us ever again from this time forth and forever. 132. Eternal remember David and all his afflictions. We have been through a great deal of afflictions, so the cry here is, remember that, Father. (coughs) Hear our cry, hear our plea, and quickly answer. How he swore to the Eternal and vowed to the mighty God of Jacob. God, or David made his vows. He made his commitments to God. He, as all humans, was not always able to keep those. He broke them from time to time because of being human, as we all do. But he had vowed those vows, and he snapped back to them after various sins, as did the apostles and others, and as we must. Surely I will not come into the tabernacle of my house, nor go up into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes, or slumber to my eyelids, until I find, or find out, a place for the eternal, and habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. Now David knew at that point in time that Abraham had been led to Jerusalem. He knew that was the headquarters of Israel. Shiloh had been chosen at one point for a short time, and then God placed his name in Jerusalem. That is very clear. That's where they kept the feast in Second Chronicles 30. It's clear in Deuteronomy 16 and in Joshua and many other places that the city in Israel, in Judea, whom the Lord would choose, or where the Lord would choose to place his name, was Jerusalem. And they were all to go up to the feast at Jerusalem. And in fact, he even said, Jerusalem is the place of the feast. If, you, if the way be too far and you cannot get to Jerusalem, then the alternative is to keep the feast at home. Those are the only two places in the Bible that God says we can keep his feasts. I think that may be one reason he says in Isaiah 1 that he hates our feasts and our new moons and our way of doing things because we don't do it his way. Now, I think that this is a very interesting passage because David was making a prophecy Obviously, he understood where God had set his name, okay? So that was not really a question for him. The question is for us. Can we all pick up and go to Jerusalem in the Middle East this end of this September, or the middle of it, with trumpets, atonement, and the feast? I think the logistics and the cost are out of question. So we then must keep it at home. Now, he said he was going to find a place for God's habitation. Let's read on a little bit more about this, and then I'll expound it some more. 
Then I will not rest or sleep until I find a place for the eternal and habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. So David wanted to know in this chapter where God's habitation would be. Okay? That's the uh, thing that is posed here. The question at hand. Lo, we heard of it at Ephrata. That could be perhaps Ephraim. We found it in the field of the woods. That means fruitfulness. And Ephraim is the fruitful vine of Genesis 49. So, it will be within Ephraim. And Jerusalem was in the land of Judea. And those who are in Jerusalem have to flee to the mountains of Judea, Matthew 24. So, perhaps he is placing it here in the most fruitful land that God provided, which I believe is Ephraim, not Manasseh, and I think I have proved that and can show that in Scripture very clearly at this point. We don't have time to go there today. So, the place that God chooses is being uh, designated probably in Ephraim, the fruitful field, and in Judea within that. We will go into his tabernacles. We will worship at his footstool. You have to know the habitation of God before you can go before him there, right? If I don't know where your house is, I can't come find you because I don't know where you are. So it's important we know where God is if we are to worship him in the way that he wants to be worshipped. Arise, O Eternal, into your rest. Now we know ultimately the rest... Well, maybe not ultimately, but the first big rest is the millennium for mankind. But God is going to rest at Jerusalem. In fact, the heavenly Jerusalem will come down the beginning of the millennium, and he will rest there forevermore. But it will come to the physical Jerusalem. Not Timbuktu or somewhere, but the Mount of Olives will split in the day that he returns nearby to Jerusalem. And he says, he will come and dwell with us at Jerusalem, there in Zechariah 2, 3 and 4, those passages, Haggai, in the end time, at the time of the two witnesses, in the time of the remnant of the church. So we need to know where that is. Because if we are to be a part of the faithful remnant of God that he stirs to come, it is going to be to the true Jerusalem and Zion. It was not a question in David's mind where Jerusalem and Zion were when he wrote that. I submit that it is a valid question today. Where is the true Jerusalem and the real Mount of Olives where Christ will return. Now, I'm not going to get into a great deal of that today, but I will want to go through it in great detail. We're still learning. I think he showed us where Zion is, the true Zion, where we can count the towers. We see the name of God all over it, and it is the joy of all the land. That Zion over there is not. I made a point to someone recently who questions this thought. He quoted the archaeologist as finding all this stuff that proves 
That's the Jerusalem over there. Au contraire. The, archae- the leading archaeologist, not somebody that found a cat's eye marble under his porch, the leading archaeologists in the world who are digging in the nation of Israel today take great joy in their publications. The leading architecture, architecture, archaeological magazines, if you've read them at all, every time they find something that does not fit the Bible, they write an article and they say, what we have found does not fit the Bible story. They make great hay of that. Why? Because they want to disallow the Bible. So any time they find stuff, and they do it continually, and references made almost monthly in those major magazines to disprove the Bible as the Word of God. So they click their heels and clap their hands with joy when they find something that makes a lie of the Bible, and it is quite frequent. Because they have written, and I have read, and I may quote a few of them for you, that the majority of what they are finding there does not corroborate, but in fact is contradictory to Scripture. Is it possible that the Bible is correct and they have the wrong place? And I'll leave it at that for today. Think about that. We can very easily assume that that's where it is because that's what everybody thinks. The archaeologists don't think that. Well, they think that's the place. They just think the Bible is wrong. I believe in this book. I don't believe. Therefore, I have to consider alternatives. Okay, let's move on down here. Uh, Verse 9. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. Now, we've read many scriptures that show that if we achieve a level of righteousness that is acceptable to God, that we will be able to shout for joy, and the feasts of Zechariah 8 will turn into fa- uh, fast will turn into feasts of joy, and then the trees will even clap their hands. It will be so joyous. And that prior to the millennium, when God blesses His people as a witness and example to the world, that the desert will bloom as a wilderness, as a, as a, the wilderness will bloom as a rose. And on and on. So he's speaking of this time. For your servant David's sake, turn not away the face of your anointed. The Eternal has sworn in truth to David, he will not turn from it. Of the fruit of your body will I set upon your throne. If your children will keep my covenant and my testimony that I shall teach them, Their children shall also sit upon your throne forevermore. So this is an eternal prophecy, or a prophecy for eternity. Verse 13, For the eternal has chosen, he has desired it, or Zion, he has desired it for his habitation. 
So David says, I'm going, not going to rest until I find a habitation for the eternal, and it is Zion and Jerusalem. They are frequently mentioned and always paired together. Not always paired together, but frequently paired together in the church. They have to be close together. Where you find one, you will find the other. This is my rest forever, eternally. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation. This is an eternal prophecy. And her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There, at Zion and Jerusalem, will I make the horn of David to bud. I have ordained a lamp for my anointed, a light to see what needs to be seen. His enemies will I clothe with shame. He's going to do that here at the end time. A witness will be made against this world that they cannot stand against until the last three and a half days before Christ returns. His enemies will I clothe with shame, but upon himself shall his crown flourish. Now the prophecies in Isaiah show that he will send a minister, or not that he will send uh, someone in the like, likeness of David in the end time. And you go to Ezekiel 34 and see the same thing further down in that chapter. Now, that being said, I want to talk with you a little bit here. I think we'll stop as far as the Psalms are gone right there. I want to tell you a little bit about some things I have gone through. Uh, a couple months ago, I was frustrated with myself to the point I thought maybe I should just take off maybe for three months this summer and uh, get away from things. And uh, perhaps I was as frustrated with me as you are. I don't know. Probably. May, might have even been worse. And we had so, so much sickness and so much difficulty before us that I felt, no, that is, cannot be the answer. I should not do that. Uh, but I gave a sermon, oh, I don't know, some time back, not too long ago, where I went through and showed that God says, cry aloud, spare not, tell my people their sins. Uh, Ezekiel 33 which says if the people appoint a watchman and he sees danger, but he is to proclaim that loudly and longly to be sure that people see the warning, otherwise it's on his head. Now, I think that I have done that. For the last 12 years in this congregation, it has been, cry aloud, a great deal. And even before that, back to 96 and even 93 in Church of the Great God. That is the primary message along with uh, different adjuncts of it and what shall be in the prophecies for the church. Much of it inspirational and strengthening and revealing in ways that I think most of the church do not even to this day understand. But he says to do that in Ezekiel 33. And 
I, frankly, came to grips with that early this morning. And I think I have completed that. I think I have fulfilled that. I think I have done exactly what Ezekiel told me to do and what Isaiah has told me to do. Perhaps it has even been to the point of overkill. And should essentially cease at this point. This is a sea change sermon, if you will. You're going to see a different Daryl henceforth, I hope. Because I think I have done that and I have absolved myself from any penalty for not having done so. So we shall get on more with Ezekiel 34. You should go and read Ezekiel 33 in its entirety. I'm not going there today. And Ezekiel 34 in its entirety. Because it lays the blame and the guilt for a lot of what happened in the church and is still happening upon the ministry for oppressing and abusing and misusing the people. Now we have tried to change that culture. We have not been examining your cupboards. We have not been telling you what color of car to drive. We have not been jumping on you about every little thing. In fact, it is a very small handful of times in the past 12 years that I have truly chewed anybody out. And in fact, I very rarely come to individuals and say, you need to fix this or you're getting booted out or whatever. Very rare. I have, however, been very loud in church because I was seeking to fulfill these warnings that God has laid upon me and did individually and personally lay upon me to accomplish. And I have been very concerned, mostly about me, that I diligently obey God. Because in the very context of the remnant church, the latter temple, and the two witnesses, it says that we must diligently obey and these things will happen. So even though I frequently don't come up to scratch, and even Joshua of the two witnesses was a brand plucked out of the fire, if you will recall, was a candidate for the lake of fire or tribulation at the very least. And God pulled him out. So I think there is a great deal of symbolism there for us that in this end time, if even the leaders are in jeopardy, or one of them especially, so are we. And that we must take extreme heed to that. Now that is why I have done what I have done over these past years. But it would seem that perhaps it has become like a parent with a 14-year-old rebellious child. Oh, Ma, please, get off my back. I've heard that every day. I am so sick and tired of that, I can barely stand it. I'm going to run away from home, or whatever. Okay? All right. 
I'm going to start treating you as if you are at least age 20, spiritually, the age of accountability. No longer will I rail at the sputum that God spewed out about how we must change our diet, change our entertainment, change our this, change our that. It's been said. And if you don't remember it, there's lots and lots of tapes, if you forget. So, it will be rare, henceforth, that I go there. Instruction, as in today, and some of the things that God says. But the urging, the pleading, the drawing, the pulling, or as some have termed it, the beating, shall cease. You are responsible spiritual adults. I have cried aloud, I have spared not, and I am done now. I am comfortable with Ezekiel 33. And I'm going to try to get comfortable with Ezekiel 34 now, especially the last half. You hold me to a great standard, as well you should, and I will receive double judgment for any of my sins and faux pas and mistakes. Much harsher judgment than will you. That comes with the territory. I accept that. I don't always live up to it. Now, I may have created a certain amount of confusion over the third tithe issue because there was a time. This is not a doctrinal issue because it is very clear in the Bible by usage, that there were indeed three different tithes. They aren't called one, two, three, or A, B, C, or whatever, but by use, they are defined because it's clear that this one was to go all of it here, this one was to go all of it there, and that one was to go all of it there. So it cannot be divided up in a third, a third, and a third for all the above. That is the doctrine that the church has always taught, and it is the doctrine of almost all the churches of God today, even yet. Now, there's an administrative element of that that I explored some years back in saying that perhaps the U.S. government, by taking money out of our paychecks, and then giving them to the elderly, the widow, the orphan, uh, the welfare brat, and so on, uh, was indeed performing that function for us. Now, the doctrine is clear, but there are different administrations. I had not done as the other churches. I said, you could keep it in your home. And you take care of the widow and the orphan. Now, when we had a specific need here, I said perhaps you should pool some of it to make sure that that person gets taken care of, but I did not want it myself. If some few of you wanted to turn it in, we would keep it there uh, for any specific needs that came up for those who qualified. Not one dime has gone to any minister or elder, including me. It is going to take care, most of it, of a widow now. But, if you 
feel from administrative point of view that the U.S. government is indeed, for the nation of Israel, performing the third tithe function, and you can, before God, not have a problem with your conscience ahead of that, I would not stand in your way of doing it that way, though we have almost completed this third tithe year. But undoubtedly some have not kept it anyway uh, because of the way they felt. So I'm not going to condemn that, and I am going to make this statement that administratively, if you see it that way, I don't have a problem with it. That's between you and God as an accountable adult. I have explained the scriptures and that the doctrine of third tithe is certainly there. The administrative part of it, as Paul said, can have variations. There are different administrations. And perhaps, in many respects, the government of Israel, physical Israel, has taken our physical dollars and has given them to our physical widows and elderly and poor and strangers. So I don't know that I have an argument with that, and in fact, more or less adopted that approach for a while. And then when we got into this thing of the seven-year cycles and so on, uh, it, it came to my mind to preach it as, as the Old Testament lays it out. And that has not changed in the New Testament. There's been a change in the tithing but, as, he, as Paul said, not in the terms of the tithes themselves, but in terms of to whom it was to go. Not the Levitical priesthood, but the New Testament ministry, the Melchizedek priesthood. And Paul made it very clear to Timothy that he was to pay the ministers from the gospel. And he said, I can take tithes. He did not always, uh, when he was especially in a new area, he made tents and had his own living made so that he wouldn't lay that on them right away. Uh, there were more important things for them to learn, the weightier matters, and he didn't want to get into the money part of it, perhaps, until later. But he made it very clear to Timothy and others who were administering those churches that that's the way it was to be done. Okay? Enough on that. But I wanted to clear any confusion that I might have made by saying one thing and then later saying something else. And uh, take that as you wish. I don't always do everything right, brethren. I've lost my temper a few times, time or two especially, I guess, in the last year, year and a half. And uh, when I lost it, I think that it was richly deserved where the castigation went, However, it might not should have been done where anyone else could hear it, and that has happened a couple times, and should not have. So I will apologize to you for that, and ask your forgiveness. Sometimes, once in a while, I don't generally have a bad temper, but once in a great while I will lose it, and uh, Katie bar the door. So I apologize, and I ask your forgiveness for that and many other infractions that I have done. We have all had great infractions, and we need to forgive one another and live together in peace and love as God would have us to do as a family. Now, families have their difficulties. 
they get sideways with one another, and they have their fights. Man and woman do. Children do. It's just part of life. Offenses will come, inevitably. How we handle those is incredibly important. So, I am relieved, I think, of any responsibility for Ezekiel 33. And the crying aloud and sparing not will be very rare. Lifting my voice will be very rare. Maybe I can live with myself better. Maybe you can live better with me. I don't know. But that is my goal and my purpose and my intent. So take it for what it's worth.